welcome to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and this is part two of the Fracture Series. This one focuses on the elbow. Go ahead and listen to the Forearm Podcast for review of the neurovascular assessment. Now, the elbow is actually three joints. So you've got the radiocapitellar, the ulnohumeral, and the radioulnar. And these three joints together allow the middle of the arm to flex, extend, supinate, and pronate. And I'd always forget these, but remember that supinate is when you turn your palm up so you can like hold a bowl of soup. So when you're examining the elbow, you want to palpate the medial epicondyle, and that's the origin of the wrist and finger flexors and pronators, and the lateral epicondyle, which is the origin of the wrist and finger extensors, and the olecranon as well. The ossification centers of the elbow on x-rays appear and fuse at different times. For boys, those appear and fuse later than girls. And this is a very visual thing, so you can go ahead and Google the acronym CRITO, C-R-I-T-O-E, and know that they appear and fuse in this order. So capitellum, radial head, the inner or medial epicondyle, the trochlea, the olecranon, and then the external or lateral epicondyle, C-R-I-T-O-E. Again, look up a table to learn more and know that fusion of all of these isn't complete until puberty. And generally, they ossify at various times throughout childhood. So you got to know when a quote-unquote fragment is actually just a normal ossification center rather than part of the bone broken off. And again, if you haven't listened to the forearm episode, go ahead and do so now, specifically for the neurovascular assessment. You're going to want to do the same thing assessing the radial ulnar and median nerves um, for elbow injuries as you would for forearm or wrist injuries. Any discussion of elbow fractures begins with supracondylar fractures because it's the most common type of elbow fracture in kids. It has a higher risk for neurovascular injury than most other pediatric fractures. 60% of elbow fractures are supracondylar and three out of four of these are from foosh, fell on outstretched hand. Most commonly, they're seen between kids that are between the ages of 2 and 7. Less than 3-year-olds, they can be sustained from a fall from 3 feet or less, like a couch. And greater than 3-year-olds, it's often playground injuries. This is the classic fell from the monkey bars. Um, Hyperextension is the mechanism about 95% of the time. And the supracondylar, or the bumps above the condyles, is the thinnest and weakest part of the humerus, so it makes sense why that would break. On exam, you will see pain and swelling with limited range of motion, and often there's obvious deformity and displacement. You can have that S-shaped elbow. If there's no pulse, you're worried about compartment syndrome, this kid needs immediate reduction. So either you're doing it or ortho is doing it. The AP and the true 90-degree lateral x-rays are definitely needed. So there are many times when I'll have a patient transferred in from another facility where the lateral film is inadequate. It does not allow you to see the normal alignment of the elbow. That 90-degree true lateral x-ray lets you see the radiocapitellar line and the anterior humeral line and measure the engagement of the three bones to make sure that the elbow is not dislocated. So, if you suspect a supracondylar fracture, before you get x-rays, give pain control, splint with a long arm posterior as it lies. So the elbow can be bent at 20 to 30 degrees, that's fine. 
just enough to get the kid over to x-ray, wrap loosely, and know that pain control is going to help the x-ray tech get that kid into a true lateral if possible. A type 1 supracondylar fracture is non-displaced, and all that you may see on the x-ray is the effusion. So this is the anterior sail sign and or the posterior fat pad. The anterior humeral line will bisect the capitellum as it normally would. These patients can get a posterior long arm splint and sling, splint them at 90 degrees wrist to axilla with neutral wrist rotation, kind of in that hand-shaking position, and they should see orthopedics within seven days. A type 2 supracondylar fracture of the humerus is displaced with intact posterior periosteum. The anterior humeral line is displaced anteriorly. The distal fragment is posterior. This definitely needs orthopedic consult right away. A type 3, the anterior and posterior periosteum are disrupted. These can be displaced posteromedial, which is the most common, posterolateral, or anterolateral. It's like the two pieces aren't even next to each other. Again, call orthopedics for type 2 and definitely for type 3. Obviously call for an open fracture or compromised pulse or concern for compartment syndrome. Type 2, the management, is closed versus open reduction with pinning. And that depends on the age of the child, the degree of angulation, what ortho says. Type 3, that's open reduction. Pins, if they're placed, stay in for about three to four weeks. These kids are casted and mobilized. More so than other fractures, supracondylar fractures of the humerus can be associated with vascular injury. The brachial artery itself is particularly susceptible. This can be hurt by posterolateral displacement. The risk has been quoted as high as 1 in 20 of type 2s and 3s, though in practice I've not seen it as high as that. If you do have a child with a vascular injury and it doesn't get fixed, you can end up with Volkmann's ischemic contracture. That's an arm that has fixed elbow flexion, a pronated forearm, a flexed wrist, and extended MCPs. It's incredibly disfiguring with a lot of morbidity. In terms of nerve injuries, the anterior interosseous branch of the median nerve is the number one most injured. The radial and ulnar nerves can be injured as well. The risk is as high as 10% of all type 2s and 3s, though again, I don't see that as often. Most of these injuries are neuropraxias that resolve in their own in less than 3 months. You can sometimes see forearm and wrist fractures along with supracondylar fractures as well. If there's deformity or distal pain in the forearm, consider x-rays of the radius and ulna as well. You'll see this in about less than 5% of patients. Overall, if supracondylar fractures are assessed and treated promptly, outcomes are very good. This is uh, best detailed in a study from Mazda, which is a perspective assessment. All right, so moving on from supracondylar fractures, let's talk about the proximal forearm. And I know that there was a forearm injury podcast, but the proximal forearm is really closely related to the elbow, and I think it fits best here. So let's start with radial neck fractures. These are much more rare than supracondylars when you have a fallen outstretched hand foosh injury. This is with the elbow extended, and the radial head is impacted into the capitellum. You're going to have pain and swelling at the proximal radius. You'll get pain especially with supination and flexion. And this can accompany a posterior elbow dislocation. The x-ray will often show Salter Harris 2 injuries through the proximal radial physis and definitely look for malalignment of the radiocapitellar line. This is where the radial head should normally bisect the capitellum in all views, the AP and the lateral. 
If you've got a radial neck fracture, the kid goes in a long arm splint and call ortho during the ED visit to take a look at the films if you can. Up to 30 degrees of angulation is acceptable, and that child should be placed in a 90-degree long-arm posterior splint. If there's greater than 30 degrees of angulation of the radial neck, they probably need closed reduction. Greater than 60 degrees, which is very rare, they're going to need open reduction. Complications, as you might expect, are much higher in teenagers and those that need reduced. So moving a little bit further proximally, let's talk about the radial head. These are much more common in skeletally mature adolescents. Half of all proximal radius fractures have a second elbow injury, including a ligament rupture, medial epicondyle fracture, fracture of the olecranon, or another ulnar fracture. Olecranon is fractured when a child falls onto a flexed or extended elbow, or less likely a foosh. You'll see pain and swelling over the olecranon, and x-rays can best demonstrate abnormalities on the lateral, and you may see a stress fracture or green stick fracture of the metaphysis with minimal or any displacement at all. A third of these are associated with other fractures or injuries. Outcomes are generally good. You want to talk to orthopedics in the ED if you see a step-off of greater than 2 millimeters from an olecranon fracture or displacement or accompanied by a radial neck injury. Those will need open reduction. Any fracture of the coronoid needs orthopedic consultation. The coronoid process ossifies at age 6. Remember, it's the first one in that critomnemonic. These are often associated with elbow dislocation, and this is not a dislocation podcast, so if you see an isolated elbow dislocation and you're comfortable, go ahead and reduce that. But as a rule of thumb, if you see an elbow dislocation plus an associated fracture, it's a good idea to call orthopedics with this one. If less than 50% of the coronoid is fractured, kids can probably do well in a long-arm cast. If there's more than that, they're going to need reduction. And then there's the dreaded Montegia fracture. This is a proximal ulna fracture with a radial head dislocation. This is when a kid falls on an outstretched hand with a pronated arm. Incredibly rare. These need closed reduction. All right, so in conclusion, fractures of the elbow are very common in children. Know that they're most common in kids ages 2 to 7, and the classic story is a kid falling off monkey bars onto an outstretched hand. You're going to want to know the different types of supracondylar fractures, and the most important x-ray is that true lateral 90-degree x-ray. If you think a kid has an elbow fracture, splint them as it lies, give pain control, and get the x-rays. Type 2 and type 3 Supracondylar fractures need immediate orthopedic consult, and these are high risk for vascular and neurologic injuries. And remember to look up the ossification centers when dealing with a skeletally immature child so you can pick out normal growth of the bones versus a fracture fragment. All right, well, that's all that I've got on elbow fractures. Check out all the other podcasts in this series as they come along and reference the forearm episode for that detailed neurovascular assessment. If you want to leave feedback, go ahead and do so. I'd really appreciate it. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your content. Check out PenBlog for more great educational content, including seven years worth of Fracture Fridays. For Pem Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.